0: If you would, take your Bibles and turn back to Micah, the Old Testament prophet of Micah that we read from a few moments ago in chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of kind of where we've been. It's been a couple of weeks since we were involved in the study of the Old Testament book of Micah because last week was a, a singing night. But so far as we have looked at this particular Old Testament book, a lot of what we have studied in the first three chapters, taking each chapter individually, has been a lot of frightening news or a lot of words of warning with just a little bit of hope sprinkled in. It's been mostly sort of negative news. It's almost like turning on the evening news. It's all bad with just a little bit of good sprinkled in, seeming maybe at the end to to make us tune in the next time or something. But since it's been a couple of weeks since we've studied, let me just remind you of a couple of, of basic facts that we need to get back in our minds as we continue through this book and Lord willing, finish it in the month of May on Sunday evenings. Keep in mind that Micah, the person, seems to be just a fairly common person. Yes, he was a prophet, but he just seemed to be kind of an everyday person who was called by God to be a prophet. He was not from Jerusalem. He wasn't from some other major urban center. He was from some nothing place, about 25 miles or so from the city of Jerusalem. And he wasn't primarily even sent to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. There are a few messages here and there for that city, but that doesn't seem to be his major emphasis, to be towards Jerusalem or towards any other major urban center of the time. Instead, he seems to be sort of a common person for the common people. Yeah, there were a lot of big news things of the day, a lot of international things going on at his time. And in this chapter, chapter four and chapter five, he will sort of get to those, but he never really even mentions by name these big things that are happening. Instead, Micah's main emphasis that runs from beginning to end of the book seems to be how these big news stories or these international events will impact the common people, just the everyday folks. And he'll mention some high ups, he'll mention some very important people, but his main emphasis is just the everyday, the common things. The last time we studied from the book of Micah, two Sunday nights ago, Tyler walked us through chapter 3. And I need not to repreach what he said, but just to give you a couple of facts, because it does tie over to where we are tonight. He reminded us, if you recall, in chapter 3, that Micah was speaking about how the issues facing the kingdom, facing the nation, started at the very top. Political leaders, even religious leaders, the priests of the time, were instigating a lot of the troubles or simply just didn't care about the problems that were going on, the sin that was all throughout the nation. And so the people, seemingly, at least from a human standpoint, had very few people they could trust. But they should have trusted in God all along. And in reality, in Micah chapter 4, and spoiler alert, Micah chapter 5, that's all. That's what Micah is going to be saying to them. In reality, it's what he's going to be saying for the rest of the book. But especially in chapter 4, And chapter 5, yes, the Lord is going to punish the kingdom. He's going to punish Jerusalem and Judah for the sins they have committed. But he is not going to leave the city of Jerusalem, nor the kingdom of Judah, without any hope. And so we're titling chapter 4 of Micah with simply one word, and that word is rescue. Because what Micah seems to try to get across in this chapter is how God will rescue his people, despite the fact that they have sinned. And even though he must punish them for their sins, there is great hope in this chapter. It is a wonderful, wonderful chapter. But as you come to this middle chapter of the book of Micah, what's amazing about it is Micah gives a prophecy that runs through this chapter that was for his people at his time. But there's also a further fulfillment of it that you and I continue to be blessed by. And I hope tonight to point out both of those As we go through this chapter, we won't study every verse, but I do want to make three observations from Micah chapter four that provide for us this picture of God's rescue. We're going to notice hope both then and now. Then we're going to notice how God heals. And then as we close, we're going to notice God's higher thoughts, how God's thinking is greater than ours. So notice with tonight, first of all, hope both then and now. And this comes from the text that we read a few moments ago from Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 5. There is a great promise of hope as this chapter opens. But it's even stronger when we consider what had just been said. At the end of Micah chapter 3, as Tyler reminded us a couple of weeks ago, there was a very strong message from the Lord that that, that some of the people refused to hear. Notice what's said in Micah chapter 3 and verse 12. Therefore... Because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. Now, Micah spent most of his time, as we just said, dealing with the common people. But here he shows that those who have been in charge, the leaders, the political leaders, the religious leaders, the city they were in was going to be destroyed. God was going to bring punishment upon his people. God's judgment was going to be poured out. Because of the sins of the people. And even though there's a chapter break after that verse. Remember that Micah did not write chapters. He simply made a prophecy. There is not a break in thought. Between what had just been said at the end of Micah 3. And how what we have as Micah chapter 4 begins. Because even though Micah had just given this terrible promise of punishment. He also was able to turn around and give a great promise of hope. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established at or on the highest of the mountains. And it shall be lifted up above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. The message goes on to be one of peace. Notice the end of verse three. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any longer. What is Micah talking about recall that when we deal with prophecy especially in the old testament not all the time but quite a, quite a number of times there is what sometimes is called a nearer fulfillment something that happens in the lifetime of the prophet or in the lifetime of the people or very soon thereafter and there's also a further fulfillment something that it's picturing That is to come much beyond the life of the prophet and the life of the people to whom that prophet is speaking. That is the case with everything that is mentioned in this chapter. This is a glorious chapter. And it begins with a nearer fulfillment. But you and I continue to gain hope from the further fulfillment. Yes, the city of Jerusalem would be overrun. Yes, God would pour out his punishment. But Micah, to his people, was saying, it's not going to stay that way forever. There are going to be people who return to Jerusalem. God is going to make this city of Jerusalem great again. It's going to be a city that is remembered even beyond this destruction. God is not going to let it be just laid waste forever. And what hope that had to provide to those people at that time. That yes, we're going to go through some difficult times. There's going to be punishment, but this city is going to be rebuilt. There's going to be a powerful place here again. But the prophecy also had a further fulfillment that provides you and I with hope even today. The key phrase is found all the way back up in verse one, where Micah speaks of the latter days. Do you remember in Acts chapter two? When Peter stands up on that great day of Pentecost and he makes it clear in his sermon that As he words it there, the last Micah might say the latter days are now beginning. He was saying that something different is now here. What was Micah prophesying about? Oh, he was prophesying about the city of Jerusalem for his people at his time. Yes, but there is a further fulfillment for us because Micah was also saying something greater than what what God is going to rebuild here physically is coming from the city of Jerusalem. Folks, Micah is talking about the church. He's talking about the kingdom. Notice again, verse two of Micah, chapter four. Many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Simple question. Where did the church begin, at least in its physical form here on the earth in the city of Jerusalem? On Mount Zion. From where did the church radiate outward? From Jerusalem. You read in the book of Acts. Remember as Jesus was preparing to ascend back into heaven in Acts chapter 1. He gave that outline that would really outline the book of Acts. That they would go from Jerusalem to, to Judea. If I can say it. To Judea. To Samaria. And to the ends or the uttermost ends of the earth. It all radiated out from Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And many nations came together in Acts chapter 2, did they not? Luke, who records the book of Acts for us, even records all those different people who were there. They were all Jews, but they're from all over the known world who came together to hear the word of the Lord. But it wasn't the word of the Lord they were expecting to hear on that day. But it was the message they needed to hear on that day. And it radiated out from that place. And thankfully, still continues to radiate throughout the world. Micah was given a message of hope. For his people at his time. That Jerusalem would not stay a destroyed or a desolate place forever. But he also was extending that prophecy. Hundreds of years into the future. He looked well beyond his day. And though he could never have fully understood it. He was talking about something that was greater than the physical city of Jerusalem. Or even the temple that sat there. He was talking about where our hope lies. In the church of our Lord. Now knowing that. Before we move on, let verse 5 sink in for a moment. If we are considering the kingdom or the church, and we're talking about the hope that that provides, we need to ask the question, how should we act in the kingdom or in the church? Notice verse 5. For all the peoples walk each in their name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. We're living in times where the word church where the concept of organized religion, where even some, in some pockets the name of Jesus Christ are being made fun of, derided, considered a, a relic of the past. People may not be worshipping false gods all around. They may be falling down before stone and metal and those sorts of things. But we certainly are living in a time where we worship the God of self as a society. How should we act as people of God when that is all around us? We will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Nothing that goes on around us is going to make us move one step from being faithful to God in heaven. The message that God gives through Micah filled the people of that time if they would listen to it with hope. But folks, it fills us with far more hope because the church continues to stand. And we will walk in it forever and ever. So there is hope then and now, then and now number two in this chapter. There are also words of healing found in verses six, seven and eight. You know, God has always considered the plight of people in society who are considered lesser or lowly. He's always considered that as important. He's always made it clear that as the children's song says, we are weak, but he is strong. But we have hope because the Lord strengthens us. He heals us in ways that we never could do on our own. And so in verses six, seven and eight, Micah speaks of the fact that God cares for those who may seem lesser or outcast in society. And again, Micah was speaking twofold as Jerusalem and as the people would be brought back together. God would show very special care and a very special place to those who were hurting. In fact, the Lord would make something very special of them. Notice what the prophet said in verses six and seven of chapter four. In that day, declares the Lord. I will assemble the lame, and gather those who have been driven away, and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant. Keep that phrase in mind. And those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth, and forevermore. I told you to keep in phrase that little phrase, that little statement, the remnant I will make of them, a remnant. That idea, that picture of remnant, is found over and over and over in Scripture. Sometimes. It's worded that way. Sometimes we just see it pictured. In fact, we've already seen the book of Micah. And again, spoiler alert, we're going to see it big time in chapter 5 next week. But some have been taking this idea that, that to, to expand the idea and call it renment theology. And you go, well, okay, I didn't come here tonight to learn big fancy terminology. But remnant theology simply says this. God has always had a renment, a smaller group out of the masses of humanity whom he has used because they were faithful to carry forward his plan In the world. Using that terminology of remnant theology. I want you to hear one paragraph. A scholar was writing about these verses. He said this. God has transforming power. He uses it for his people. His remnant theology works. He punishes a people only to gather from them a faithful remnant to receive his blessings. Returning home, they will not have to involve themselves to find a leader strong enough to protect them from the nations. God will be king as he always should have been. And this time nothing will interfere. Now keep in mind. That Micah is concerned with the common man. How reassuring would this have been. To those who were not seen as important. In the in the kingdom. To those whom chapter 3. The priests and the leaders. Had been pushing down and relegating to the very edges of society. How, how reassuring. That now God sees them. And he's seen them all along. But now God is promising them, I'm going to make something very special out of you. He will use the faithful no matter where they might see themselves or be seen by others in society. That's in the nearer fulfillment. But put that in the further fulfillment, the church. How powerful of a thought is this? Folks in the church, I'm sorry, but there are no perfect people. We all make mistakes I'm not just offending you, I'm offending myself. We we all make mistakes, right? All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and then backing up to verse 10. We are people who are striving for perfection. We are striving for holiness. We're striving for that perfect mark that God has set in place. But we all fall short at times. And sometimes we can beat ourselves up about that. Now, certainly, we don't want to excuse sin in our lives. We don't want to avoid striving for a life that's perfect and holy and all those sorts of things. Striving for the life that God would have us to lead. But that said, we're still weak at times. Our spiritual lives are not always what they should be or what we would desire them to be. We are, to use terminology from here, spiritually lame. And the world could cast us off because we're not like them. Because we don't do the same things they do. But God uses people just like us and heals us To make something greater of us than we ever could have made of ourselves. God heals his people and builds a church that's stronger than anything this world could have ever placed here. It is the kingdom, as Daniel prophesied, that would stand forever. But it's made of people who are healed. Not people who are perfect. Not people who have been sinless all along. How powerful that God heals. Number three in this chapter I see God's higher thoughts. The remainder of the chapter, verse 9 through verse 13. There's an enjoyment in this chapter, is there not? The thought of these beautiful reminders of the church. But we don't need to lose sight of the original hearer's reaction when they would have heard these words from Micah. They had to be confusing. They had to be overwhelming to them. But there was still a message of hope. But there also is still a message that it's couched in this negative reminder. All these positive things are couched in the middle of a book that's saying judgment's coming. God's punishment is coming. These wonderful verses that we're studying tonight are in the middle of that. Where were they to turn? Where were these people to turn when all this negative stuff was in, line, in mind? And in verse 9, the Lord anticipates their worry because they're going to look for human wisdom like they have all along. He said in verse 9, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? The pain That pain has seized you like a woman in labor? What, what's he saying? He's saying for all of these years... One commentator I was looking at this week said, really, since the days of Solomon, you can really go further back than that. But for sure, since the days of Solomon, they have relied even as a nation upon human wisdom. They've forgotten to look to God, at least most of the time. And God is basically asking rhetorical questions. Now that you're in the midst of this, now that you know it's coming, are you going to keep looking to human wisdom? Are you going to keep looking to a king, to an earthly counselor? One, again, one scholar, the last question he asked in writing about this said, have they not turned to God for counsel? The rhetorical answer is no. At least not in a long, long, long time. In the midst of all that was going on, the people were struggling to look beyond just human wisdom. And so in the final verses of this chapter, the Lord reminds His people that He knows better than they know about what is going on, about why it's going on, about how it's going to go on, And about the purposes that those things will serve. Notice verse 12, just as an example. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan. That He is gathering them as sheaves to the threshing floor. And the command is then given at the beginning of verse 13. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. Now wait a second, what? Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. I I thought God was using a foreign nation to punish His people. Oh, He is. He absolutely is. But what God is doing here is showing I'm about to turn the tables of history in a way you never could have pictured. The Lord has a plan that these people cannot understand because as Isaiah says his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. And even unbeknownst to these people that Micah is speaking to, they're a part of that plan. The nation has relied on human wisdom for so long that they fail to see that God utilizes the movements of history, both big ones and small ones, both good and bad for his purposes. But here, Micah is trying to get them to see that God is using this moment of time or this movement of history to change the very course of history in a way they couldn't see, have seen. A pagan nation, the Assyrians, think they have everything under control. They are moving through Judah. Back when we introduced the book of Micah, chapter 1, we said they have already overtaken or will overtake something like 26 villages and communities. And they will come to the very gate of Jerusalem. From a military standpoint, this thing is over. All they've got to do is take over Jerusalem. And that's not going to be a problem for this army. It is the most powerful army in the world at that time. But what does God do? He turns the tables. He has been bringing the Assyrians through only to turn them back. They are threshed like grain in the very hand of God. In a way that no one could have seen coming. Even the people to whom Micah was speaking, who themselves were sinful and about to be punished. God was going to use even them to turn the tide, to turn history. And to change the motion of all of history, all the future. And you go, I thought all of this had a nearer fulfillment and a further fulfillment. What could this possibly have to do with the church? I think is a very clear application. And that is simply this. We cannot always know what the Lord is doing. We can only see today. We can study history. Yeah, we can. We can look back. We for certain cannot know what's coming. We can guess. But none of us knows what's coming in the future. And we we cannot fully understand the movements of history, especially that are going on right in our time. We can try, and we can speculate, and we can guess, and we can say this looks a lot like what happened way back when. But we can't really know what's happening internationally or even nationally with with movements of history. But I know this: that no matter what happens through all the, those movements of history, the church is the kingdom that will stand forever. The church will be there through it all. No matter what God decides to do through nations, through terrorist groups, through insurgencies, through changes of political leadership, through rises rises of of kings and queens, fallings of kings and queens, whatever God decides to do, the church will stand forever. Nothing's going to change that. It is God's kingdom. And even though at times it may seem that Satan's forces may win battles, And at times it may seem as if Satan's forces have the upper hand. The difference between Micah's day and ours is this. There's not a gate like there was back then. The Assyrian army came to the gate of Jerusalem and then got turned away. In our day and time, there's not a gate. There's a judgment bar coming. And on that day, the forces of God, the people who are with God, are going to be shown to have been right all along. For certain, God is going to be shown to have been right all along and to have had the upper hand all throughout history, whether it ever looked like it or not. The Lord will reign victorious forever. Throughout the ages, God has used a rendement. It was just eight people, Noah's family, out of the millions, some suggest even a billion or more on the earth, whom God used to save mankind from the flood. It seems to be even possibly fewer than that. In the family of Lot, whom God saved from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Though the number was larger, it's still a small number compared with how many were in the world when there were 7,000 who refused to bow the knee to the false god Baal during the days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. And it goes on and on and on with these seemingly minuscule numbers compared with nations and even the world around them. But throughout it all, God has continued His plan. It has continued to unfold. Nothing has changed His purpose. Not a thing. And though at times those who have been faithful may have seemed to have been a very, very small part of what was going on, God has never wavered and his people have always pressed on through it. And so it is with the church. Compared with the countless billions, seemingly, those who are truly faithful to the New Testament may seem very small and by the world's standards may seem very insignificant. But Micah chapter 4 And many other places in Scripture remind us that God's plan has already been proven true. It proved true among the nation of Israel, the kingdom of Judah. It proved true on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The church was established. That kingdom will never see an ending. It will last forever. It will reign throughout all time. And so the simple thing to end this lesson with is this. You and I have a choice that may at first seem quite simple. But it has it is the most profound choice you could ever make. And that's this, will we fall pressure, fall to the pressure of being in the minority when the majority wishes to push Christianity to the sidelines? Or will we stand with the always and ever victorious King of Kings? The one who's already won the war. And to change illustrations, we're just waiting for the clock to run out. If we're with him, we are always on the winning side. Tonight, make sure that you are in that faithful remnant. At times it's difficult because, yes, it seems like we are so few when compared with the seven plus billion people in the world. And at times it seems difficult because we we turn on the news, we open up the internet, we see things, we see how Christianity and Christian moral values and and the Bible and the name of Christ are just being pushed to the sidelines, run over by a society that doesn't care about those things anymore. And those things are frightening in many ways. And they're real. But folks, God wins. End of story. And the people who are with him are victorious. I've said before, I've heard others say before, if you don't believe it, read the back of the book. Because Revelation makes it clear. We have already won. If we simply are part of that remnant that remains faithful. No matter what. Are you one of his? Are you truly faithful? Are you part of that remnant? Do you know the hope that God provides through his church? Do you need the healing that only the blood of Christ can supply? Do you have it? Do you have the hope? Are you trusting in God's higher thoughts? Thoughts that are higher than yours. Greater than yours. And that you may not understand fully every day but you know they'll be victorious in the end. Tonight, if you need to become a Christian, or if you need to return in faithfulness, we invite you to come as we stand and sing to encourage you.